This event was recorded at the 2018 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good afternoon, evening. We're calling this evening now? Yeah. Good evening and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Um, I am so looking forward to this event tonight. Uh, we've got two fantastic talents who are going to be um, reading a little bit from their books. We're going to have a bit of a chat and then we'll open the floor for questions. Then they'll both be signing over in the bookshop afterwards. So if you're too shy or there are too many questions, you can ask a question then if you're buying a book. <coughs> you don't have to, but it's <laughs> nice, it's polite. So I, I think without any further delay, I would really like to introduce the sage. I'm going to hold the books up as props. Imran Mahmood and Guy Gunaratni. And I'd like you to join me, welcome them to the Edinburgh Book Festival. So I think the first thing I'd like to do is, is have both authors read. So Guy, would you like to start sure. just alphabetically? Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. Sure, okay, so I'm gonna read from the very opening of, of the book. Um, and uh, the book sort of is divided up into five separate voices, four, five-ish. Um, but the, the, the opening and, and the, the closing segment is kind of a, a collective voice um, that leans towards sort of all of those voices to make sure that you get the sense of, of the place and the, of the vernacular. There were things that I learned to call fury as a younger. Fury was a fearsome drum, some hungry and hot temper, ill spirit or madness that never touched us for long but followed our bodies for time. See London. This city taints its young. If you're from here, you'd know, innit? All our faces were pinched sour. Even the good few I spent my early way with. We were all born into the menace from day dot. These were the hidden violences. Day-long deaths that snuffed out our small and limited futures. We grew up around these towers, so struggle was a standard echo in our speech, in thought, in action. But it was only after the release of that one video, clipped from a phone of a witness, that everyone else saw the truth. The image on every news channel and paper, a black boy had killed an off-duty soldier. Soldier boy, we called him. The black younger had stopped soldier boy and struck him down with a cleaver. Then he wrapped his body in a black cloth and strung him up from a road sign. Stuff was dark. Darkest because it happened in a space so familiar. In our city, on road and in broad daylight. The sound of the black boy's voice came next, shouting into the camera about the infidel, the sinful kufar. It was on radio and television, an endless loop. He called himself the Hand of Allah, but to us, he looked as if he just rolled out the same ga school gates as us. He had the same train as we wore, spoke the same road slang we used. The blood was not what shocked us. For us, it was his face like a mirror, reflecting our own confused and frightened hearts. See, violence made this city. Those living, born and raised, grew up with it, grew up with it like an older brother. And on that final day when flames licked the domes of our painted mosque, we were all far beyond saving. Fury was like a fever in the air, a corrupt mass of bodies pulsing together in pain and rhetoric. Muhajirun were herding our people along August Road and had us stand on a burnt earth like a testament. There was violence in our brotherhood, that much is clear, though we never knew how much of that violence came from us or the road beneath our feet. We were London's scowling youth. And as siblings of rage, we were never meant to stray beyond the street. We might not have known it with our eyes so alight, but it was true. Our miseducation is proof, isn't it? 
Those school corridors were like cold chambers. Anyone who went to St. Mary's would attest. Our bodies were locked for verbal assaults, our words clipped and surging with our own code, and fuck anyone else who disagreed, you know. Violence shattered our language, and our lines tagged the streets. They'd read us on walls in open seams and dim laplight. We'd cotch and park benches, waste air, sock-mouthed and bound, stupid to our fates the entire time. Our tongues were so soaked in our defences, we hoped only to outlast the day. Just look at how we spoke to one another. In it, though, my man and pussy-o. Our friendships we called bloods, and our homes we called our ends. We reveled in throwing crafted curses at our mothers and receiving hard slaps to heads. Our combs cut lines in our hair and we scarred our eyebrows with blades. We became warrior tribes of manlim, slave kings and palm-swiping cubs we were. Our parents knew nothing. And most others, most others only knew us from the noise we made at the back of the buses. <coughs> Close without touch. That was the only love permitted, though it was deeply felt among our own. We smoked weed together, borrowed idioms and shopped American verses. In our caustic speech, we threw out platitudes, in our guts, our feisty wit. It was like we lived upon jagged teeth in the dark in this bone-cold London city. A young nation of mongrels, constantly measuring ourselves against what we were supposed to be, which was what I couldn't tell you. For those of us who had an elsewhere in our blood, some foreign origin, we had richer colours and ancient callings to hear. Fight with, more likely, and fight for, a push-pull of ancestry and meaning. For me, that meant Pakistan, its local mosque, which in Neesden meant going mosque and dodging Mohajirun. For my brothers on estate, they were from all over. Jamaicans, Irish pikeys, Nigerians, Ghanaians, South Indians, Bengalis. Proper Commonwealth kids, innit? Even the Arab squaddies from UAE. We'd all spy those private school boys from Belmont and Mill Hill, and we'd wonder, how would it have felt to come from the same story? To have been moulded out of one thing and not of many? There was nothing more foreign to us than that, nothing more boring and pale to imagine. Ours was a language, a dubbing of noise, while theirs was a one-note, void of new feeling, of any, and any sense of place. Place was our own, this place. Whether we heard the whispers of our older roots never mattered, what mattered for us was the present, terse and cold, where we could make our own coarse music. This was where we found our young madnesses, after all, on road, or rather between the roads we knew and the world we felt we could never hope to claim. So it was like watching our faces made foul when we saw that video, when that soldier boy was butchered by a homegrown brother. That's when we knew we were all lost to the ruin. They called it terrorism, but terrorism never felt so close. Even when we saw the madness rise when the hijab lady was slashed in the car park in Bricky, or when Michael was knifed in North, the swell only peaked after the soldier boy's killing. And I think about why it had to be a younger that done it. Why it was that when we saw the eyes of the black boy with a dripping blade, we felt closer to him than the soldier boy slain in the street. But now I know this city and its <coughs> sickness of violence and mean living. These things come in sharp ruptures that don't discern. It was the fury, horror curled into horror. Violence trailing back for centuries, I heard as much in mosque and from rude boys on road. So when the riots blew up in the square, when the Umar came out and the Union Jack burned in the June air, the terror had become unwound and lightweight. Each of us were caught in the same swirl, 
all held together with our own small furies in this single, mad, monstrous, and lunatic sea. That was great. Thank you. Would you like to read now? Uh, uh, yes, yeah, so, so this is um, a, a little way into the book, a couple of pages in, and it's um, a young black teenager, and he's on trial for murder, and he sacked his lawyer, and so he finds himself having to give his own closing speech to the jury, so this is him, this young black teenager. Uh, so uh, here's my confession. I gave you evidence on oath before on the Holy Bible but God knows what I told you in the witness box wasn't exactly the whole truth. It had some truths, don't get me wrong, a lot of truths, but it also had some maybe not truths. But that is the way he wanted it, my brief. It's not about the truth, he says to me. It's about what they can believe. So maybe I'll start with the evidences. Okay, the evidences don't look that good for me. But there aren't that many of them, really. But before I go into all of that, I just want to say this. Ignore what all I said or I didn't say in my statement when I got up there in the box the other day. That don't matter, really, does it? If there's no real evidence to tie me to this murder. If the evidence is rubbish, what does it matter what I did or I didn't tell you? Okay, so here it is. This is how I wrote them down. One, a boy got shot who was from the same area I live in. Two, three months before he got shot, someone saw me apparently walking past him and saying to him, you're waste, man. Three, a couple of months before he was shot, a witness saw Jamil, the, the dead boy, having an argument with a black boy about my age wearing a hoodie with white Chinese-style writing on the back. Four, cell site evidence. The phone expert said that my phone was in the same cell site as the deceased at the exact moment of the shooting. My phone was also in the cell site as his on the day that I was supposed to be arguing with the boy. And it was also in the same cell site as his phone on the day uh, that I was supposed to have said to him, you're waste man, all within one cell site area. What did that expert say, 50 or 60 meters? Five, the search of my flat. The police arrested me because they heard a rumour that I was involved in the shooting. They searched my flat and found a Baikal handgun. They found a black hoodie with Chinese-style writing on it. They found my phone, which matched the cell site evidence. They found my, found my passport. They found an e-ticket for a flight to Spain. They found cash, £30,000 in my rucksack. They found the firearms discharge residue that the prosecution has been going on about in my car and on my hoodie, and they found me, six. The police say that the bullet which killed the boy, Jamil, must have come from my gun, ballistics. You remember that guy who came with all his charts and whatever. That bullet came from that gun, he says. Seven, they found a tiny particle of the dead boy's blood under my nails. Eight, they found a few of my hairs in his car. So, <coughs> open and shut, innit? Enough said. You can go home now and thank you very much for your attention. And if you did convict me on that, you would probably go home and sleep all nice at night. I know that. But you've been sitting here for four weeks doing this case. And what I was hoping for was you wanted to make them weeks count for something. Um, but then I thought, I ain't so sure. 
Maybe to you lot, this is just the thing to do, isn't it? A nice break from your lives. You can get up every day and put on a clean shirt and come to this place and look at papers or whatever and nod and shake your heads. You can listen to him, the prosecution. You can listen to this judge here and feel like you're doing something. You can be all respectable. And when you leave here after this case is done, you can go back to your lives to do whatever it is you do. But I don't disappear. You know, when you lot go home, I'm still here. I'm still a person, innit? When your little boy, who's maybe four or five years old right now, just starting school, grows up, I'll still be in a prison cell. And when he gets to like 10 and starts his first day at school, I'll be doing my time. And when he leaves and gets a job or goes to uni, I'll still be here doing my life sentence because you didn't look hard enough, because you didn't do your job. That's all I'm asking. Just listen to my story. I'm innocent, I promise you. If you look hard enough, you'll see it for yourself. Just look at the evidence. That will tell you all you need to know. And trust me, there is enough there to make you see that what I'm saying is real. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. I think it's always nice um, at an event like this when you have the authors read. But I think with these two books particularly, um, I felt quite strongly that I was keen to hear you both read because the voices are so strong in both novels. And um, I, kept, I kept reading bits of it. I mean, obviously, you can hear from my accent that that's not where I'm from. But there was, there was bits about it where I just I had to kind of stop and like look at what was there because I could hear the voice so strongly in my head with both of the books. Um, and I wondered, as you were writing it, did it take a lot to get that or did it come quite easily, the, the creation of the voices? I mean, you've got in your book, you've got five first-person narrators, don't you? Yeah, it's interesting. It's one of those weird, mysterious things that happen. Um, I mean, it, it's four first-person narratives and, and it, it's, it's written in vernacular for each one. So there's two young men, three young men, who, uh, who grew up in, a, in and around an estate in northwest London. So they're voices are, are written in, in road dialect or the vernacular of, of London, young London. You've probably heard this if you're in a bus in London, you've, you've heard those voices. And it's the, the vernacular that I grew up with. There are the, the two other voices, one of whom is, is Carolyn, who speaks to her sort of um, experience in Northern Ireland. So that's written in a, in a in Northern Irish dialect. And there's another character who um, was an elderly man named Nelson, who speaks his experience as a new immigrant in London, um, coming from Montserrat. His is a, is a West Indian patois. So all these um, vernaculars are sort of mixed together, and sort of you jump around from one voice to another. Um, in the writing, um, I suppose that the three, uh, the three younger characters were, were closest to my own experience growing up in London, but mm. um, the two <laughs> other voices that came along, um, I don't know if anyone remembers the same, but like I tend to like silence <laughs> around when I'm writing, um, and the the voices just sort of emerged, um, and it was sort of speaking to the to wider the wider theme of extremism and violence in the book, um, and so when Carolyn and her Northern Irish dialect came along, it was just quite insistent, mm -hmm. and so the silence helped in just listening really hard, and making sure that it, f it felt right. But I think. The most important thing was for me not to, w to worry too much about sort of authenticity or accuracy too much. It was more about the rhythm and the energy of each voice. It, that was true for the young characters as well as the older characters. It was just making sure that there was an honesty there in terms of um, 
the rhythm of it, of the poetry of the of the, the the London dialect and how it sort of inherits some words from West Indian and, and mm -hmm. Irish. Um, that for me is just a geeky thing for me to just I'm interested in it and how languages. The way the up. young men speak, it's it's not it's not only as if they've been recorded and it's just them speaking. They, you, s you use the word poetry there. there. There's a definite and incredibly intricate poetic way that you've put words together. It's not, it's not just straightforward speech. You know, the way that they speak is absolutely fantastic, I think. It's really great. Yeah. Did you read it aloud to yourself? I wish, I kind of wish I, I did. But like, oh, to I could say I did, but not really. I, it was more, you know, Internal. just hearing it. But have you, um, one of the, uh, the books I, I read recently that quite influenced it was Sam Sullivan's Lone Londoners, right. which was, it's written in sort of, um, yeah, like a West Indian patois. Yeah. Um, uh, and it was written in the 50s in London, and you're sort of, you're tricked in into thinking, when you, when you read a book like that, that's heavily, it's all dialect. You're, you're tricked into thinking, oh, he must have just, you know, just went out in London and sort of jot down exactly mm -hmm. what was going on there. But that's not what he did. It was a, it was a creative construct. It was more about a, a rhythm, as I say. And for me, that, that was a good sort of, it was a, it was a good tip, a lesson. I wasn't, as I say, I wasn't really after <laughs> making sure it was exact. It was just trying to capture some essence of it and put it into the word. And, and the most interesting thing for me was to how to render the words themselves onto the page, because they are quite different. I could just make up a kind of a, um, a word to sort of fill in for a certain term, like in it, that kind of thing. Just making sure that that feeds into the, the wider rhythm of it. Mm. And with, with yours as well, Imran, you... I think maybe you should tell people what you do as a day job. Uh, so I'm a, a criminal barrister as my day job. Um, and in fact, funnily enough, when you're talking about the, the, vo the voice, um, I, I grew up in Liverpool, so, mm -hmm. I, so I'm born and bred Scouser. So that voice that I wrote in isn't, isn't the voice that's most natural to me. And so do you work in London? I work in, London. Work in London. I work in London. I've been working in London. In fact, I've been in London for longer than I've been in, than I, than I was in uh, Liverpool. Um, but what um, happened with me was that most of my clients, because it's crime, most of my clients are young men, because it tends to be young men who commit the crimes. Um, and the more, th the longer that you do the job, the more senior you become, the more, the more interesting the crimes. I say interesting, but that's a euphemism for the more dangerous the crimes. And um, the more dangerous the crimes, the, mo the more serious the crimes, um, Oddly enough, the younger the men, and the more deprived, and from the they, they come from more deprived circumstances. And so I borrowed the, that voice from conversations I've had over the course of twenty years with young men who I've had to defend. And one of the things that always struck me is that I would meet, in a usually in a small cell, a client for the first time. And, and it might be a young man, he might be 16 or 15, and he would have seen things that I had never seen. He um, might have grown up in an, a, an estate, but with a, a parent who was a drug addict or a parent who was in prison. He would have these very fragile social relationships with his peers or with his family. And in a way, it was a, it was little surprise that he would end up in a, in, in a situation where he was found, let's say, holding a gun for some other person in a gang. 
And, and that would mean that he was exposed or at risk of a sentence of maybe 20 years just because he was holding it. And he might, he might be 15 years of age. So, so I was dealing with these men in these really difficult circumstances. But the thing I found about them was that they were lyrical, in much more intelligent than I expected them to be, quite often um, easily more intelligent than me. Um, but just because we didn't have, they didn't have formal educations, it, it didn't mean that they weren't intelligent. And sometimes what, what I found was that they, the way that they expressed themselves came through in the, in the way that they spoke to me. And so there was this rhythm to their speech. It's not an invented rhythm. It's, it's not a product of my imagination. This is just me borrowing from them. And for me, that character in the book is a collage of all of the people that mm -hmm. I've met over the years because they have that, there is that similarity. Um, you've got people, uh, uh, um, privately what I think is that when you've got people who are intelligent but they've been deprived of op opportunity. You've got all of this potential that it needs to spill out somewhere. Mm. And for some of them, it spills out in music. I, I had um, clients who could, who could rap at the, s at the drop of a hat. Um, you know, and I'd just give them the subject, and I'd say, well, you know, why don't you rap me your, what you would say in your closing speech? And within seconds, they would. And it was this kind of melodic chant would come from nowhere and I was just kind of incredibly impressed by all of this wasted but but wasted potential um so th so there was that and that's where it, that's where it came from and you were talking about reading that w whether I read it out loud mm -hmm. and I, I like you <laughs> like I wish I had read it out loud so that I could say yeah, yeah. I, I read all of this <laughs> out loud but in fact my my uh, editor did exactly that when he was editing it he wrote that for the line edit he read every single line out to himself as he was going along. And he was able to say, look, page 120, that doesn't work because there's a, there's a word here which doesn't work when, you, when it's spoken. Um, so that's what he did. And I was hoping by, by, by you know, doing that and not naming the defendant <laughs> that I could in a way draw together all of the people that I'd met over 20 years and have have that voice translated. Al although, th you know, not, they weren't all of them bright. I mean, some of them, I remember one young lad, and he was on trial for something quite serious, and every question I uh, asked him was met with it, the same two-word answer. And that two-word answer for every question was, your mum. And right. I thought, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to go very far with this <laughs> if, if I say, well, what were you That's doing? That's focus, though, <laughs> to keep going with that. And he just went, your mum. Your mum, every question. But apart from him, um, as I say, 90, uh, 90 odd percent of, of the people I meet, they're just, you know, it's, it's shatteringly um, intelligent and I heartbreaking. Mean, it's, it's interesting to me um, to read it as well because part of my day job is I'm not a criminal barrister, I'm a secondary teacher, and I work with um, support for learning a lot of the time, and a lot of the time I work with kids that are vulnerable for different reasons. So often I'll, I'll teach kids or work with kids that have had those really difficult traumatic backgrounds. And at the same time, I have a 15-year-old son. So when I was reading both the books, I was thinking, you know, A, how lucky my son is that he doesn't live in a sort of a dangerous environment like that. But B, how, you know, like how, how much those kids, those, those young men sort of miss opportunities. Now, that's not the case for all three of your young men because one of them looks like he's going to, you know, escape and and, you know, make something of himself and sort of traditional expectations right. of making something for yourself. 
but just the thought of that that by an accident of birth essentially that you have to you know you have to survive in these very very pressurized environments i think it's in your book that your character talks about you can't really say no to gangs you know when you're approached there isn't there isn't a good way out of things generally and I'd find that really horrifying as well. And and some of some of your characters' experience, so they're very trapped. It feels. Yeah, um, I, it's it's interesting. Like I, I think, because uh, I grew up in in Neasden, and it's kind of a like a, a nowhere place. It's not really a. There's no there's no real way to create community out of a a place that's sort of cleaved open by this dual carriageway, so everyone just passes through it. Mm-hmm. So imagine growing up in a place like that. It's, it, it grew up in a, with people who, you know, would every day sort of wake up and think, well, there's nothing around me that reminds me or lets me know that there, is, there are other things in, that are possible for you. And, but the, it seems like, especially with the people I grew up with, and, and I, I guess that f- has fed into the characters somewhat, um, you either go one of two ways. You either sort of um, internalize that and think, well, you know, if you're from a nowhere place, you'd begin to see yourself as a nobody, and so you sort of internalize that self-worth. Or you do the thing that a lot of my friends did, which was sort of think, well, maybe the world's wrong, and maybe I'm the exception. Yeah. And uh, one of the characters has sort of has 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 channeled that, sort of listens to sort of motivational tapes. A lot of my friends did this. Really? Yeah, yeah, Just like it was a big deal. One just wanted to get out of um, the place they were in, which necessitates sort of a detachment from where you're, where you're at or where you started from. Mm-hmm. Um, but w- what's interesting is um, sometimes the I would see a different sense, and that's, I guess, articulate in the character of Arden, which is sort of... Um, recalibrates that slightly where he channels everything around him into something beautiful and creative mm-hmm. and he's a, an inspiring writer and a rapper um, so it's it it becomes a reclamation in a way mm-hmm. where let me turn all this stuff stuff into something something else um, that isn't up to someone else's uh, sensibility it's a reclamation of, of what, the, what their, their pain and their, and their um, experience and I think it really conveys that character in particular. He really conveys that there's an expectation of him, and he's he's very self-aware of how others look at him, and he's mm. not quite an insider, and he's not quite yeah. an outsider. He's sort of like you know maybe a bit like you're saying about Nice, and he's sort of neither here nor there. He's kind of accepted, but also isn't. And I found him very moving, and actually as a character that will stay with me because you know in, in that way when you read a book that's and it's similar with your book as well. When you read a book that that you connect with, you sort of think afterwards, yeah, but what happened next? <laughs> you know, part two, and you know there's not going to be obviously a part two because that would be weird, but it would be, it, you know, you want to see how that kid's going to go on, you know, and I really felt for him. <laughs> I really yeah. did. He was like so many of the kids that I worked with, yeah. though, and you just think, you know, some kids are lucky and they find their thing and some kids don't find their thing and something bigger than them finds them and then uses them. You know, it's just really horrifying. Do you, what's the response been um, from people that are from communities like that to your books? Has have you had any feedback? Um, well, I was um, that book. Um, fortunately um, for me, was chosen as a I think World Book Night book, mm-hmm. which means that l- lots of copies of it made their way into into prisons. 
um, where a lot of my clients were. I wasn't actually expecting that the other half none of, of my, that sentence. None of my clients. <laughs> All my clients are free. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody gets time. <laughs> They're all innocent. Um, but yeah, so <laughs> and yeah, um, and you know, by and large, the response has been r really warming in a way. Do they keep in touch with you? Um, <laughs> they well, they're not really allowed <laughs> to keep in touch. <laughs> no, <laughs> they keep in touch with the solicitors, and the solicitors right, okay. let me know how they're getting on. Um, but by and large, yes. And what they, the response has been that what they say is that um, f for them, it, it feels as, as though um, it's a, uh, yeah, that they've. It's very rare that they get the chance to say what they want to say. Mm. It's very rare that the things which are on their minds get the get, get publicity, get the the oxygen of publicity. What what normally happens is that they are in a very highly pressurized environment, something goes wrong, they are arrested, they um, appear in court, and although they get a chance to say something, it's really not a chance for them to say the things which matter to them. Th they've got a chance to give an explanation, in other words, to answer questions, and the qu questions are very pointed about what were you doing, where were you, how long were you there for, and so on. So they don't really, get, they don't really have a voice. And all of the stuff that's interesting to say about them usually ends up being said by me because I'm the bridge between them and the judge or the bridge between them and the, the jury. So I'm, in a way, translating as best I can the stories that they have to say and, and translate them to the jury in, in a closing speech. But that's not really their, their voice. I'm just doing what I can to help um, project their stories. So, so for them, uh, from what they tell me, it was, a, it was a relief for some of those issues that are canvas in the book to be out there because mm. it, it felt, um, one, one guy said to me, it felt as, a, as though the thing that they had wanted to say about all of the injustices and the prejudices and everything else, the challenges that face them on, on a daily basis were f was finally being said by, by somebody who understood the things that they had been going through. Yeah. And have you, have you had any sort of feedback this yeah. is entirely the wrong word to use uh, what have people's responses been that have come from say Neesden I mean I mean yeah I mean it, it's interesting I haven't really spoken about this but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna okay and it might be badly articulated but because uh, there's also the conversation around around the book right because of this stuff mm -hmm. and it's like sort of like um because I don't read reviews or anything like that so uh, a lot of my friends read all the all the conversation about the book um, and they all really like it and all, but like they, something's come up like with, with my friend Sean and my other mate Nilesh, who uh, spoke about how other people are speaking, are, are talking about the voices and certain words I used. So words like authenticity is one of them. Words like raw mm -hmm. and gritty, that kind of thing. You know, they, those those words. Yeah, they're probably on the on the cover as well. From people like me. Well, no, it's <laughs> no, but I'm se I'm serious though because like I don't know if yeah, that's no, actually totally. right. you know yeah, authentic. Exactly. exactly, but it's sort of like they, they d I remember having a conversation about like, but why why wouldn't it be authentic and w authentic to who? And they also they've seen words like this used for, uh, I guess, art that comes out of, I suppose, um, the margin or whatever the margin's supposed to be, mm -hmm. um, uh, again and again. So I mean, it's a way of talking about art in a way that 
talks about it in every other way apart from the fact that it is art. So there's no artifice. It's more about is it real mm. or is it or is it is it my experience as opposed to the artistic contract of a thing? Um, it's not that's not usually the way other books are talked about. It's usually about the the structure and that and the form and that kind of thing. Um, a lot of the questions, a lot of the descriptions are about um, the authenticity of the experience, and it's a way of remarginalizing something that comes out of the margin. And it's and it, it, these are the conversations I have with them. It's sort of like how come they they don't talk about the way the voices interact. Because I know that's a conversation that other books have. And it's usually about whether my experience has been real or, or part of... Or so every question that comes up usually is um, something about whether how, how much of my experience is in each character. Mm -hmm. It's usually not the case for most, for most yeah, books. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. That, so I, that's been a thing. <laughs> so yeah, that's well, concern, the, yeah, that you say that. Because I mean, when, when my book came out, nobody said to me, is this your lived experience? Right. Because you know it's f yeah. you know I'm a writer. They're just assuming yeah. I'm making it up. Whereas because you're from London, yeah. do you think that's like an issue of race or? No, I think I think I mean, it's rare to have characters uh, like this in a book like this that sort of is uh, um, you know doing a thing with with language in a way, um, and so it, it's I, I just the fact that it's a rarity I guess makes. It makes the the conversation slightly skewed, um, but I, you know, all I would say was is that that's been a conversation with people who are from there. It's like, mm -hmm. yeah, but why why aren't why isn't this book talked about this way? Yeah. Um, so that's been interesting. Other than other, oh, apart from that, the first reaction is, oh, well, yeah, finally, like finally. Our, our experience or something like our experience or somebody that we sort of recognise or you know that's my you know I re I know that street or yeah, something like that. Yeah, street. That, that's been cool because it's like yeah no this is outside my window. But I remember having that experience with other books and that's why it's been really special. I'm reading White Teeth because um, I lived uh, my local library was Wilsingree Library and I remember getting White Teeth out from that library and reading the first page and seeing that it was set in Wills and Green, which blew my mind. Mm. The fact that something is outside my window was worthy of like the page. That w didn't occur to me until I read it on the page. And I, it seems like that's been a similar experience. Which, which, is which isn't something that living, you know, living in Scotland that, and writing in Scotland that you'd think that people in London would really think, you know, because we so frequently have this kind of perception that, you know, London sees itself as the centre of the universe. So like everything's, you know, sure. done in London and, you know, and uh, and you're like, wow, a book's been written, set in, you know, Dundee. That's you know, <laughs> that's unusual. But um, I, I think that's really fascinating. The fact that it, there is a feeling that that hasn't hasn't been done before in that way, you know. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's so many other books that have, are about London that has sort of vernacular and, and like the vernacular with in anyone's book as well. It's it's been it's been there. Mm -hmm. I think it's just uh, I don't know. I think the the, the conversation is. Has, has moved on from, oh, isn't that quaint, to mm -hmm. something, oh, wow, that's really interesting. And it's yeah. sort of peeking to... I find it really life. interesting as well that you don't, um, you don't explain some of the words, which I really liked, yeah. you know, where you have to, you know, you have to a bit of work as a reader and you have to kind of... Well, one of my favourite writers is James Kellerman. I read that in an interview and I wanted to talk about that like a bit. Because what, what was interesting was, was just, it's unaccommodating. <laughs> and it isn't, 
What is, is it like to... as a non-Scottish person reading somebody like Kelman? Seriously, because <laughs> I am Scottish yeah. and um, and lived in Glasgow for quite a long time and I'm married to a Glaswegian and I sometimes find that pretty impenetrable. Yeah. So do you, do you know what's going on? But I mean... So stupid question, obviously. What, it can't, does it matter? Does he care whether I, I know? And then do you... Have you sort of developed that yourself and thought, right, I'm taking a kind of a Kelman well, approach no, it, to this? Well, no, it kind of... It makes you... If you th- if you see that and think, well, that's just he's doing a thing. He's trying to capture an experience, mm-hmm. and it's sort of beside the point <laughs> whether I'm going along with him or not. And and, and, I'm, and I'm sure he he cares. But like that for me was was it, it, it makes you brave, you know. It makes you go, okay, let let me um, be uncompromising the way I render this this experience because I know it's real, and it doesn't matter wi- if it's unaccommodating for people. Or I mean, or if there's a, a moment at the beginning where you kind of have to get into rhythm of it, because I know the rhythm is real. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully people will will you know get the get the sense quickly yeah. and then follow on, which is what happened to me with with Kelman. And I think that's true with both books: is that you're so quickly immersed in in character. I think because the voices are so vivid that you're just immediately switched into that world. And even though it's not a world, I mean, I live in Northeast Fife, do you know what I mean? It's like nothing like either of those worlds. But I could completely, I was there, I was completely there. And obviously that's your job as a writer, is you're creating a world where even if there's bits and pieces that your readers kind of like, okay, there's a, it's written well enough that you're, you, you're there, you know. And I, I thought they were really wonderful for that, I have to say. And I wanted to ask you as well, this is maybe also kind of a slightly silly question. Do people ever actually give those closing spa- statements themselves? Do they get rid of their QC and then do them? Does it happen? It's never happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it, it, it does. It, it does. And, and in fact, um, th- the system now is... I mean, it, it, people have been talking about this, particularly in, in, in England, and they're, they're saying that the legal system is in crisis. And partly, a uh, part of the reason for that is that the legal aid fu- there's a legal aid funding crisis. And what that has meant is that there's not enough money in the system to pay barristers to do the job properly. And so a lot of people are being left without representation. And I have seen cases more and more in the last couple of years where, where defendants have turned up at court and judges have said to them, so are you, you're, you're representing yourself for this serious crime? And they've said, yes. And, the, and, and judges have said, well, you know you're entitled to legal aid? Yes. And do you, do you not want legal aid? No. <laughs> so w- and, and, and the reason for that is because th- they can't get anybody um, to do it on legal aid who's got the experience because the exper- really experienced advocate's going to do something else because legal aid doesn't pay enough. So they're, they're, they'd rather take a punt on their own probably absolutely no experience of law whatsoever than have somebody who's trained but is rubbish, basically. Uh, y- yeah, completely. And I mean, that's uh, horrifying. Well that's like America. Yeah. <laughs> I, but yeah. I'm serious. Yeah, yeah, no, we all, right. we all think, I'm very sorry if there are any Americans here, but we, we're all familiar with, sorry, we're all familiar with the idea that there are miscarriages of, of justice, you know, that happen sometimes there and that there are bodies that have been created, charities to fight those miscarriages. But we've always taken a rather snooty, superior kind of attitude of, well, we don't have that in our country. But obviously, we do now. We do now. And, and, and it's a fairly recent phenomenon. That's awful. Um, I'm not sure whether Scotland su- is suffering the same way as England and Wales are suffering in, in their system. But out there in England, it's, it, you know, it's horrific. Um, 
you know, if you're wealthy, if you're a footballer or you're a film star or otherwise um, famous and have access to funds, you can afford somebody who's, who's really good and really slick and have a huge team around you. But if you're an ordinary person, and, and in fact, there's a gap now at, um, at the moment so that um, you don't have to earn very much now to be deprived of legal aid. Um, and if you're deprived of legal aid, you've got to try and find somehow 25 or 30,000 pounds or 40,000 pounds to fund your defence. Because you've got to pay your solicitors and your solicitors don't come cheap and then you have to pay your counsel and they don't come cheap and then you've got to have experts um, to do you know, forensic analysis and so on and so forth. And there are lots of hearings. So there's, so there's, a, there's a big gap. And what tends to happen now is that if you have to pay for your own defence and you might do it by remortgaging your house or taking out a huge bank loan and you win. So in other words, you prove to the, the court, the crown, Queen, that you're innocent, um, you don't get your funding back. So you have to pay for it out of your own pocket and you have to live with that. So if somebody makes a false allegation against you and you're acquitted, you're paying for the cost of it. Quite apart from the fact that you are taken out of your ordinary life, you're, you're put under the spotlight for something which might be uh, embarrassing or scandalous in some other way mm. uh, you're you're held out so and, and you this can be so there's usually local press in court so they report you and say mr such and such is is on trial for possession of 10 kilos of cocaine or whatever it is and you're vilified in your community and you get through the thing and you finally prove that it wasn't you but it, because you were somewhere else um uh, but it's cost you 30 or 40 thousand pounds to do it the, the the government says, very well, uh, off you go. Um, we're not interested in recompensing you in any way. Oh. This is just the system, and it's going it, to get more and more divided, more and more polarised, more and more American, mm. more and more tragic, and um, you know, soon we'll even have Trump for prime minister. <laughs> Dude. So we're all going to die before that anyway because yep. there's going to be no food or medicine in the next few years so <laughs> it's going to be fine it's going to be like Mad Max I think um, I'm just going to change the subject slightly <laughs> before we all start to cry um, whilst reading both the books I was also struck by how um, I could see it in possibly in, in screen form like film or, or some sort of TV and I wondered if you think about that at all or how you'd feel about that if somebody approached you to make a, like so let's say a film adaptation how would you feel about that well I, 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 I've been lucky enough in fact um, that I've been that my well the book was optioned by a TV production company who and it was the one um, it was the TV company which made the Galbraith you know, Cuckoo's Calling oh, yeah. or the J.K. Yeah. Rowling detective ones. The leg. And they said that they... Yeah, they For those that have seen it, yeah. <laughs> they said they wanted that to make it into a six-parter, so a kind of BBC or Channel 4 or whatever. So um, it thrilled, you know, that they've optioned it. Uh, uh, but there's a long... I think there's a long road between being mm. optioned and being on TV. And we're at the stage where we've had an hour hour's worth written. Right. So it's yet to be green lit. But I thought, in fact, I thought as I was writing it, it felt quite visual to me as mm -hmm. I was writing it. And I think this might be a symptom of growing up around film and, 
and TV, so that I find it now very difficult to write anything without visualising it first, so without seeing it on a screen, mm. weirdly. So I wonder whether that's why, and what that might be one of the reasons why it's so much out there now is so kind of transmutable and mm. it can be converted to TV quite quite easily, I think. Yeah. So much. Guy, what do you think about yours? Possibly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If someone wants to option it, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, it'd be fun to see it happen. <sighs> yeah. I mean, it would quite be strange. interesting. I don't know. Would you think it... I don't know. I to quite. I mean, I mean, from the point of view, of quite strange that you've written these books and then that somebody else. I mean, I I think generally it's not the the novelist <laughs> that then writes the the film. I mean, I know it can be sometimes, but it tends to be another writer mm. to to then hand that that over and just kind of go okay. Well, you know, when people say, "Oh, it's like when your book comes out, especially it's the first book, it's like your baby coming out of." Yeah. You know, I've never really felt that. No. I kind of feel it's a healthy detachment because I, um, going through the publishing. <laughs> thing it th you realize how many people are far more important than me when the, the fact that it, it's there's so many other people that um, are integral in, in getting that the book into the hands of readers right that by that point there's I'm, I'm writing the next book and I'm thinking about yeah. other things um, and it feels good <laughs> it really does feel good to to, to for other people to come along and, and talk about the book in their way and their interpretation. Most of the time they talk about themselves, which is re actually really wonderful. Um, so it's a strange thing. So if, 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 if the book was ever to be made into, into something else, it'd be great for me to just watch it yeah. <laughs> as, a, as a civilian. Because you mentioned um, White Teeth before, and that was made into a TV. Yeah, yeah I yeah. never watched it. I don't know, sometimes, you know, you read a book and you love it and then you, you, <laughs> you watch the TV thing and you're like, oh, they've missed the point entirely. <laughs> Where's the bit I really love there? So I'm, I'm, I'm often a bit wary about them. But I think sometimes you read things and you think, yeah, I could absolutely see that on the screen. So, yeah, I'll be interested. I'll we'll watch to see what happens with your option. I have to say, I agree with wh what you said about um, uh, having this d detachment from the book because it's, uh, I think it's a collaboration. It's yeah. uh, very little of it's me. I think about 10%, I mean, genuinely, 10% is the writing. I think the rest of it is, I mean, it's edited at, you know, out of existence always, because it's edited about five times. So, it's what, so I did the draft, it goes through the eight, my agent. My agent goes through it and says, here are my notes, this is what we think. Can you change all of these things? So I change all of those things, and they go, actually, we liked it the first time, right? can you change it all back? <laughs> and then it goes to the publishers, and then th your editor will go through it and say, we think this needs to be slightly moved to here and this over there. And, and they get it back to you and then you do those structural changes. And once you've done those, it's got to be copy edited and proof edited. And then by, by the time you've gone through that whole stage and then somebody's put a cover on it and somebody else has typeset it. And it's, it's had all of that done to it. Then you've got the real work, which is, you know, the publicists go out and, you know, push the book out into the world and do all of that work. The marketing people do their work. And so much time elapses by then. And your connection to the book is that umbilical cord, if there ever was one, is well and truly, you know, broken by then. And it's no, I don't really see it as my book anymore. I see it as pu ten percent mine and ninety percent everybody else's. I mean, this, this, yeah. yeah, this is the space in your head. There's a writer. I'm blanking on a name. Essayist, Maggie, I think, Argonauts. Nelson. Nelson. Um, uh, wonderful analogy about um, burning through something, a burning through of an, of an obsession. So, 
the, you know, the, the book itself would be, I guess, uh, obsessing over something, just thinking about it simmering for years. And, mm -hmm. and it does feel like a burning through of something. So once you're done, it's, it's done. And so there's more space in your head for the next obsession would be the yeah, next book. Yeah. And that feels right to me. It's like, I'm kind of done thinking about this now. It's very healthy. I, I guess. Yeah, I think that's the difference as well between different publishers too, because I know lots of writers who publish with small indie presses and you don't have that same editorial involvement or there's no there's no publicist that's involved with things. It's very much, you know, you're, it is your baby and you're selling that baby, you know, which is a terrible analogy. <laughs> <laughs> Sold none of my children despite many provocations. But I, yeah, it's, that's really interesting to me that you're able to detach over that time. Um, I'm just looking at that clock. We've got 10 minutes. And I do want to open up to, the, to questions to the floor to see if there are any. Would any and there's a, a roving mic that's coming, so if you wait till the mic gets to you. Has anybody got a question? Down here at the front, please. Um, it's a question for you. Um, I absolutely loved your book. I, I couldn't put Thank it you. down. It's totally immersed in it, as you described. Um, to me, it, it felt like very much a social commentary. And I, and I wondered if that's why you wrote it, if that was the motivation. And if so, have you said all you need to say, or is there a second book in you? <laughs> and also, um, what do your barrister colleagues, and um, mm. what's their response been? Good question. Okay, yeah, brilliant question. Um, I mean, you talk about social commentary, and that was absolutely what I was aiming at, because uh, one of the things that, I, that stri strikes me every day when I do my kind of normal day job is that I see these people, and they are in trouble, and they need help, not always... I'm not talking about them needing my help, but they need help from someone. And I compare their, their lives to the lives of other people I might meet on a day-to-day on -day basis. And I think there's a huge gulf between them. And the difference that their, their futures hold, and that there's so much difference in the futures that of, of the two types of people, um, what, what is the thing which is going to change the course of, of somebody's life and it's and I found that if as a society we could do more for people who were under those kinds of pressures then we'd have less crime and we would we, uh, we would have more cohesive society and I if you go to if you go to Mayfair in central London you won't find these street gangs if you go to Brixton and Camberwell where I live you will and it's because the heart's been ripped out of some of those areas. There's no proper support network. The funding has gone. You, and once you strip away all of that architecture from somebody's life, then there's, there's, very, there's not very much for them to do. Then there's nowhere for them to go. And then that free fall into um, economic disaster and personal disaster and social disaster is in it becomes inevitable um so so i so i wanted to say that i wanted to say that you know we might feel as if we uh, sitting from our perspective would never get involved in crime but actually there's almost no th there's almost a hair if anything between you and the next person and we don't get involved in crime because of our the, so the social architecture that's built around us that's why people who are well-educated and affluent and so on, stay away from crime. And, it, uh, and, and there's not much there. The, it's, it's very flimsy. If you, if you took that difference away, that young person who's facing a murder trial could be any of us. 
And I wanted to say that um, if we paid more attention to the damage that we do to th those societies and to young people, then you know, we might avoid you know, some of the disasters that we're currently facing. So are you writing another book then? I have finished the draft. It's with the agent. You've done your 10%. I've done my 10%. <laughs> and now th there's a kind of internal period where they hash over it and send it back to me, and then I send it back to them, and they send it back to me. <laughs> so there's a lot of that going on, but it's written, and it's, uh, I've burned through it to mm. uh, gratefully adopt your ways. Has it still got that social commentary? Uh, yes, um, because it, in fact, it's, it, the central um, character is a person who is homeless so that's that's the main character he is he's extremely intelligent um and he comes from he comes from affluence in fact and um he does have that i've said the word three times now but he does ha have that architecture around him mm. but he's gone from there to somewhere else and it's the story about that and a couple of grisly murders thrown in just for Excellent. And there's the, there's the policeman <laughs> ready to get me. Taking your research <laughs> too far. Um, we've got a lady here asking a question. Hello. Can you tell me, both of you, do you have any comment or insights on the issue of the amount of murders now occurring in London amongst young London men, which apparently this week has reached over 100 so far this year? And I wondered, are you any comments in given your, your, you know, your, where you live? and the kind of people that you see. Yeah, in fact, um, on my road, a, a young man was uh, um, uh, murdered in Camberwell, um, shot dead by gangs. He was 16 years old. And it's, it's, become, it's slowly becoming, I think, an, an epidemic if it hasn't reached that level already. What um, we discovered was that... At and this is true from my own professional experience, is that um, if you're 10 years old and you're in a secondary school in that part of London, maybe 10% of your peers will be in a gang. By the time you're 11 and 12, it's 30%. By the time you're 13 and 14, it's 40%. And by the time you're 15 or 16, it's something like 50 or 60%. Now, if you're in a criminal gang, the things that you're exposed to aren't just drugs and all of that. You're exposed to a kind of, I would say it's a campaign of manipulation by the people in your gang. So what, what they will do, they'll start off by telling you that your status rests in whether or not you can commit certain types of violent crime. So you earn your, what they call earning your spurs. And you might earn your spurs at 11 or 12 by stabbing a stranger on a bus or waiting at a bus stop or stabbing another 10 or 11-year-old who is in a different gang or stabbing an 11 or 12-year-old who is not in a gang but won't join your gang. Or you might earn them by keeping a firearm for some older member of a gang who's maybe 20 or 15, because, because he doesn't want to keep the firearm, because it's an automatic minimum five-year term just, just for having it in your possession. And so he'll give it to you if you're 11 or 12. And so there's that. And now, if you 
if you grow up and you, there's no father figure or no mother figure or there's some other kind of fractured relationship in your home and there's no social supports and the, f- the funding's gone, there's no social clubs, there's, no, there's nothing of that around, um, what you've got is your gang. Your gang becomes your family because when something awful that happens to you, they are there, in a way. But also, they are the ones, the older ones, um, are manipulating you into committing more crime. And so, what, what, what are you supposed to do when you're 13 or 14? You can either be very strong of character and resist, 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 resist all the way through until you leave. But if, you're, if education is poor, and the standards of education in England are much worse than they are here, uh, Scotland has a reputation of having fantastic education, just comparatively. Luckily, certainly. that's going down the tubes as well. Right, so. okay. <laughs> okay, well, well, you've got this coming. <laughs> um, so, so, when, so, so you've got no future, th- you've, you've got nothing to aspire to. Um, you can't meet your aspirations if you don't have your, the education. And so then your aspirations are wedded to your gang. You've got a successful gang and you can sell drugs on the, uh, on the street corner at 100, 200 pounds an hour, sometimes you can make, then you, you, we are cultivating a, not just one, but a colony of gangs across London. And now we've got a phenom- phenomenon called county lines, um, where people are moving out of London and they're, sets, they're sending the, the young people out across outside London, onto the county line, to peddle drugs from Brighton and Canterbury and so on. Mm-hmm. And that's a phenomenon there. So, it's, so, so it, in a way, it, it is like a disease colonising bits of mm. the, the surroundings. It's, it's, it's going everywhere. And so, yes, but people are being murdered and very young people are committing the murders and often very young people are being murdered. And I, I, I think it's a symptom not just of that microcosm. It's a wider problem and it's to, it's to do with social support. It's easy for a government to say this is down to the gang but, but, mm. but that's because to blame the gang is cheap. Yeah. Whereas to put, put money into um, health care and adverse and health and experiences educa- yeah. and trauma. That's and expensive. Yeah. 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 They don't want to do that. They'd rather blame the drill music or something else. Right. I'm really sorry, but we're actually going to have to wrap that up there. And I think this is the kind of conversation that could really go on for hours and become really very sad and and then get really motivated and start a kind of a gang up of a good, gang. good right. gang, a good gang. <laughs> a famous sure five. Yeah, famous no, that's five. a terrible idea. <laughs> I, I'd just like to say thank you so much to both our fantastic writers, Guy and Imran. It's been an absolute pleasure. Remember, you can ask questions in the signing tent, and you can do that. So let's just say thank you so thank much you. to both thank of you. you. Thank you, everybody, for coming. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.